They were ordinary churches, and yet there's Christ walking among his churches. He has an intimate, personal relationship with each one. There isn't a single true church on this planet that Christ isn't walking among. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part two of A Vision of the Exalted Christ. The vision of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, is stunning. Blazing fire, hair as white as snow, feet like glowing bronze, and a voice like many rushing waters. But what does this powerful and awesome vision of Jesus mean for his church? Well, today Tom will look at what each element of this incredible vision communicates about the attributes and role of our risen and exalted King for his church, for each person, and for the world. Let's find out more now as we join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. By the way, the word book here is biblion. It it refers not to a book like you and I have, those came along later, but rather to a scroll, a scroll made from, from paper, and the paper was made from the papyrus reed that grows in Egypt. They would take that reed that grows on the banks of the Nile and other places, and, and they, would, they would cut it into very thin strips. And then they would, they would lay them contrary to each other and put them under a weight. And as they dried, it would form a writing surface. And that was the common writing surface of the day. And this is, this is what he's told to write in. Write it down on a scroll made from the papyrus reed. The finished scroll, by the way, has been estimated by scholars. If you took the typical way that they wrote in the first century on scrolls and you wrote this book in Greek on a scroll, the end result would have been around 15 feet long. Verse 11 says, And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Once John wrote down everything that he saw, he was to send the finished scroll to the seven churches that are named here. Now, as I noted a couple of weeks ago, these were the key cities in seven postal districts. So think of them as as sort of the hubs in this massive wheel. And from those postal centers, word spread out to the, the smaller cities around them. Each of these cities that's listed here were between 30 and 50 miles apart, so you can, you can see how information was distributed. Now, the order of the cities listed here would have been the natural order of someone delivering this scroll. You remember our little map. If you start, let me see if I can indicate this for you. If, if you leave Patmos and you go to Miletus, the port here, head up to Ephesus, then you just keep going up to Smyrna, to Pergamum, then you turn to Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and down to Laodicea. So that's the route that you would have taken, and that's why the cities are listed in the order that they are here. The entire scroll then was to be, was to be sent by John once it was completed, 
and it was to be delivered one at a time to each of these churches where the entire scroll, not just the, the brief message to each of the churches, but this entire scroll, this entire book, was to be read to each of the churches, and undoubtedly copies were made in each place so they could keep their own. And then the messenger continued in that circular route to deliver it to the next church in the next city. So that's the setting of this vision. Now the spotlight comes on, and we go beyond the setting of the vision to the focal point of the vision, the focus of the vision, which is Jesus Christ glorified. We see him in verses 12 to 16. Let's consider him together. First of all, notice his unique identity. Verse 12 says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands, watch this, I saw one like a son of man. Now, why would you say it that way? One like a son of man. The point is, he was human-like, but he was apparently something more. Who is this? Well, remember, this letter is, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that comes from Him about Him. And the letters to the seven churches make it very obvious that this person is, in fact, Jesus Christ. But it's stated specifically in chapter 2. Notice verse 18. Here's the person who's, whom we see. Verse 18 says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God says this. So clearly and obviously we're talking here about our Lord. Now think about this moment. John is 90 years old. He has been exiled from his ministry to a little rocky island in the Aegean Sea. He hasn't seen the risen Lord for 65 years. 65 years. The last time he saw him, you remember, it was on the Mount of Olives as Jesus rose in a cloud ascending into heaven. And here he sees him standing in the middle of seven lampstands. You can only imagine the thrill, the excitement, as John once again was able to see his Lord. Now, He's called the son of, a son of man. You remember that the son of man is one of the most common titles for Jesus in the Gospels. In fact, it occurs 85 times, and 83 of those times Jesus uses it for himself. Where does this title, son of man, come from? Well, it comes from Daniel. You remember, we studied it together. Look back at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 you remember there's a vision of the world empires in the first part of this chapter. And then beginning in verse 9, the Ancient of Days takes His throne. God the Father takes His throne and He judges the, the Antichrist and destroys Him. And then verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. 
And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's where the title Son of Man comes from. It was clearly a person who, while was human-like, and of course in our Lord's case was entirely human, but also had divine attributes and qualities and characteristics. That's why you remember when at Jesus' trial, when the high priest said, are you the Messiah, the Son of the living God? And Jesus said, I am. And then he quoted this passage. What did the high priest do? He tore his robe and said he's blasphemed. He's, He's describing himself as God. So clearly in this text, in Revelation 1 then, when it says, I saw a son of man, you have a unique person who is human-like and yet also divine. Just as in Daniel 7, here in Revelation 1, we see Jesus' uniqueness. He's one like a son of man. But as we will see as this chapter unfolds, he shares the attributes and the honor and the actions of God himself. He's the God-man. Secondly, as we look at this vision, we see His chief domain. Look again at verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now these lampstands were like those commonly found in homes, in typical homes in the first century. In a nice home, you needed light at night. And so you would take a a small clay lamp. Typically, they were pinched at the end with the wick coming out. Oil was in the lamp. You would light that, but you wouldn't want it on the floor. You needed it somewhere in the room higher up so that it could cast light across the room. And so you would set it on a lampstand so that light could be broadcast across the room. This is, by the way, a powerful picture, isn't it, of the role of local churches, the role they serve in their communities. They're like lampstands in a dark world. These lampstands were gold. They weren't like the ones found in ordinary homes. Instead, they're gold, the most precious metal on earth, in order to illustrate their real value in God's sight. There are seven of them because that's the number of the churches to whom this letter is addressed. And, and likely the number seven is also at the same time symbolic. Seven is typically the number of completeness in Scripture, as we'll see the number seven a number of times in this, in this prophecy. Verse 13 says, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man. Now, Christ identifies the meaning of the seven lampstands down in verse 20. He says, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So then get a picture of what's going on here. This vision pictures the exalted Christ standing among his churches. Such a comfort. Um, You remember he promised this. He promised his continued abiding presence with his church. In Matthew 28, verse 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And here he is in this vision that we're allowed to see. 
standing among his churches. The domain of Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, notice this, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You see, the domain, the realm in which Christ reigns, the focus of his attention in the world today, and I love this, is not the great centers of political power. Of course, he rules what happens in all of the great capitals of the world. But that's not his preoccupation. That's not his primary domain. His primary domain, churches like ours, like those in the first century, those little churches that dotted Asia Minor, they weren't grand, they weren't special. They were ordinary churches, and yet there's Christ walking among his churches. He has an intimate, personal relationship with each one. There isn't a single true church on this planet that Christ isn't walking among. That's his chief domain. Thirdly here, as we look at this vision, I want you to notice his primary role. Verse 13 says, In the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Here his clothing gives us a clue as to his primary role as he's presenting himself here in this vision. In fact, I would put it this way. In the early verses of Revelation 1, we discover what we know from theology, and that is that Christ occupies three great offices. He is a prophet. Verse 1 says that he is the one revealing God's truth, the truth in this book. He is a king. Notice verse 5, he rules over the kings of the earth. And verse 5 also says he's a priest because he's the one who's made full atonement for the sins of his people. I believe that that is the meaning of the clothing that's expressed in verse 13. Notice he's clothed in a robe reaching to the feet. The robe that's described here was worn in the Old Testament by three groups of people. It was worn by royalty. You can see that in 1 Samuel 18. It was worn by prophets. You can see that in 1 Samuel 28. But the Greek word that, that is used here in the Septuagint, six of the seven times it is used in the Old Testament, this word, it's describing the robe that was worn by the high priest. Verse 13 goes on to say, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. The high priest also wore a sash, but, but it was embroidered, we're told. And so some say, well, this can't be that because this is a golden sash, and, and that wasn't a golden sash. But historians tell us that the high priest's sash had gold thread woven into it. So this is the sash worn by the high priest. And typically, uh, there's some debate about this, but typically and probably it was a sash which dropped diagonally from the shoulder across the waist. What's the point of the, this clothing? What's the point of this description? It's to remind us that he is our great high priest and he continues to serve as our great high priest. 
I mean, think of it this way. Jesus, as high priest, completed forever his atonement for our sins. He isn't still functioning as our high priest in the sense of atoning for our sins. He's already done that. Hebrews 10 Verses 11 and 12, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When it comes to the atoning work of our high priest, it's done, and he's seated at the right hand of God. There's no more sacrifice for sins. Folks, your sin is completely paid for, as we sang. His work is complete. He has once and for all atoned for every single sin every single believer has or ever will commit. If you're in Christ, you will never stand before God in judgment for your sin, not a single one, because Jesus was judged for them. But he's still functioning as a high priest. In what way? He still continues to function as our high priest in his intercession for us. Listen to Romans 8, verses 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised. So so there we're talking about our justification. It's final. Jesus as our high priest has dealt with our sins forever. But then it says, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Our high priest continues his work, not atoning for our sins. That's done once and for all but interceding on our behalf. Now, if you're thinking, you might say, well, why does Christ need to intercede? If his work at the cross was complete, does this imply that there was something deficient with his once-for-all sacrifice, that he now needs to intercede with me before the Father? The answer is absolutely not. Think of it this way. By his continual intercession... He constantly applies his once-for-all completed work at the cross. And he constantly appeals to the Father on its basis. That's Christ our high priest. The believers in John's time needed, and frankly, we still desperately need, to constantly be reminded that our Lord still serves as our great high priest, interceding for us before the Father. And today... That's his primary role. Do you know, uh, this is a different message for a different time. This isn't even in my notes. I probably shouldn't do this because I don't have time. But but let let me just remind you that even in our worship, in what we're doing here, we're trying to worship our God. Do you understand that apart from the work of your high priest, your worship is not acceptable to God and neither is mine? But Jesus takes our incomplete, inadequate, sin laden worship. And he presents it to the Father. And he says, Father, look at, look at my work. Look at my sacrifice. Accept them as you accept me. This is our great high priest. That's his primary role. Well, the vision goes on to tell us about his present ministry, specifically his ministry to his church in verses 14 to 16. Now, the vision of Christ in this passage is not describing his relationship to the world. Let me say that again. Think with me. 
The vision of Christ in this passage is not describing his relationship to the world. This is not a description of how the world will see and experience Jesus during the tribulation in chapters 6 through 18. This vision that we've begun to study doesn't end, as I said to you, until the end of chapter 3. So this vision is part of his revelation to the seven churches. In fact, remember that he's going to introduce each of these letters to the seven churches, all of them except Laodicea, by referring back to this vision. So this vision of Christ is not about his future judgment of the world. Rather, it is about his present ministry to his church. This is how he relates to us. You know, it's interesting. There, there's no physical description of Jesus in the, in the Bible. Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, I've wondered that. Wouldn't you love to have a physical description of Jesus? He looks nothing like the guy who plays the role in The Chosen. I just want to tell you that. But we don't, we don't have a description of Jesus. And this isn't one either. Because no artist can take this description of Jesus and paint a portrait of him. It's not intended to do that. Instead, using a series of similes... John describes not what Jesus looks like in the truest sense, but rather the reality of Jesus' relationship to his church. I mean, notice as we go through it how many times he uses expressions like like and as. He's just trying to search his vocabulary for some way to describe the reality of who Jesus is to his church. Now, in this present ministry of Jesus, there are seven qualities that I just want to touch on briefly, highlighted, of Jesus' relationship to his church. I love this. This is a lot for us to think about. I'm really just going to give you an outline, and you can meditate on it as I will in the days ahead. First of all, we learn in this portrait of Christ, this sort of simile portrait, his incomparable wisdom leads his church. His incomparable wisdom leads his church. Verse 14, his head and his hair. You can also translate that his head, even his hair. That is, especially his hair. We're not talking about his face now. We're going to talk about that later. We're talking about his hair. It was white like white wool like snow. Now, this should remind you, if you were here when we studied Daniel, of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. There we read, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. God the Father takes his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. There, these same expressions were used to describe God the Father. Here in Revelation 1, that very same language is used for Jesus, which of course underscores his deity. But here, it makes the very same point that it did in Daniel 7. Jesus is described with white hair to make the point that he has the wisdom that typically is accumulated with age and experience. And in his great wisdom, his immeasurable, incomparable wisdom, he leads his church. 
You don't have to worry about the church of Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church, and he leads it in incomparable wisdom. He has a plan. You might not understand his plan. You might look at the the news feed that you have and think, what is going on in the world? But Jesus has perfect wisdom, and he is working out his plan. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part two of A Vision of the Exalted Christ. Join us next time for part three. We look forward to seeing you then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.